we continue our sermon series in the Song of Solomon. I think the passage we're coming to today is one that is quite timely for us and for the whole church in our day. It's the, uh, the church around the world is experiencing God's hand of chastisement at this time. We have seen churches that have lost their pastors, even in our own denomination. We have seen divisions among those who once walked together in unity. We have seen individual believers struggling and overwhelmed with various trials and pressures, threats of job loss and division in their families. We see a government that is operating with a heavy hand, imposing heavy fines on churches for holding meetings they do not approve of. We're seeing, we're, we're seeing nations, whole nations that are paralyzed by fear, that the citizens are paralyzed by fear. We're seeing economic collapse as a result of some of this and, and hardship supply inter- chain interruptions. We have the, even the uh, locally in Canada, we have the, not, not local to us particularly, but the other coasts, we have the terrible flooding going on in, that went on in Vancouver. In such times, we can struggle wondering why the Lord does not seem to answer our prayers for deliverance. When we have times when we know that he has withdrawn, that God has withdrawn from us to chasten us for resisting him, we can wonder whether he loves us as much as he did before. If God's doing all these things, he doesn't seem to be delivering us. Does he love us? We can wonder if he is hearing our prayers at all. We may wonder if we have become repulsive in his eyes. We might even come to suppose that he must surely want to find another bride. Maybe he would prefer to cast us out and to find a better one to be his church than the church that he has now. In the passage that we're looking at today, Song of Solomon 6, 4 through 9, these questions, these doubts are resolved. They're answered very satisfactorily. We are shown clearly what Christ thinks of his true church when he chastens her. Now, we need to remember that when we look at the Song of Solomon, it's talking, when when it talks about the woman, it's talking about the true church, people that really believe, the remnant according to election. It's not talking about the broader visible church so much, but those that really believe. So, for example, when God chastened his people in the exile, you know, uh, they all went into captivity. It didn't matter whether you were one of God's elect or whether you were one of the people that was re- rebellious against God's covenant, was an unbeliever that was among the people. They all went into exile, to Babylon. But you had those like Daniel and his friends that were, were true believers, and that was the bride of Christ. The other ones that were apostate were, were not. So let me remind you, of the situation that we have here in the Song of Solomon, a little bit of review here from where we have been. In chapter 4, we saw the woman, which is the bride of Christ, being highly praised by her husband, which is Christ. Uh, He is describing how attractive she is to him and how her fruit gives him great pleasure. That would be parallel with like in John 15, where he talks about us abiding in him as a branch abides in the vine and then we'll bear much fruit. And he says that the father is pleased with our fruit. It's something that pleases him and delights him. 
But when we come over to chapter 5, the next chapter, verse 2, we have her, the bride, resisting him when he wants to come to express his love to her and enjoy her love to him. So she's not really willing to engage in meaningful communion with the Lord. She wants to keep a distance from him, not to really come and open herself up and, and, and be honest with who she is to really, to really walk in the light. She's wanting to be a little bit in the shadows, not completely away from him, but just, just a little bit shadowed. Because she is a true bride that we're talking about. We're talking about the church being the true bride. But let, let me just have a little, a little space here. He's portrayed as knocking at the door out in the dew of the night. And she is portrayed as unwilling to trouble herself to let him come in. At last, he reaches out to her with his hand and she has a complete change of heart. But when she opens the door to let him come in, she finds that he has withdrawn. To her great dismay. And it is the picture of us as the church resisting Christ, being lukewarm or losing our first love, like it talks about in the letters in Revelation. You lost your first love, Jesus says, to our husband Jesus, and then having him chasten us by withdrawing from us for a time. So that as we would try to have communion with him and interact, he's not. He's not responding to us and we and we become troubled and we we, we begin to she, she, she desires to go and be with him and she can't find him now. He does this. He withdraws like this to teach us how inappropriate it is for us to refuse to draw near to him. We don't just do this whenever we want. We need to live in fellowship with our Lord. We, we should never be content to keep our distance from him. We saw her in her desperate search for him actually growing in her love and affection for him. As she talked to her friends and told them that she wanted to find him and if they saw him to tell him that she was lovesick, that she wanted to be with him. As she explained this to her friends, they wanted to know why is he so important to you? They didn't have a very, they had a shallow understanding of who the Lord really is and of his glory and why she was so troubled about this and as she told them of all of his excellencies then her love was actually getting inflamed even more and her desire to be with him so the lord by withdrawing was using this in in her life now after hearing her describe how wonderful he is her friends who are fellow church members really the daughters of jerusalem wanted to find him too and they asked her where he had gone and we saw that at the beginning of, um, of chapter 6. She who could not find him before is the one who tells them that he is in his garden, enjoying the fruit that grows there, the fruit of his bride, which is what he does. The garden is where he meets with his bride. She is the garden in a way, and she brings forth. He feeds her, he puts the seeds in, he puts the... Uh, fertilizer and water and all these things that are needed, she brings forth fruit and he comes and he eats the fruit. He feeds upon the garden. He also feeds the garden, giving it the fertilizer and water that I was talking about to to cause it to grow. Last week, I explained to you then that, that this is his reception, you see, of our worship and our giving of our love to him. 
So we saw in 6.3 that at last she has found him and has been restored to him. She says that my beloved is mine and, and I am his. So today we get to look at what he says to her about the time of his withdrawal. And this is, the t- this is the thing that is so helpful for us, I think, in our situation right now. Because here Jesus tells us what he thinks of us when he has withdrawn from us to chasten us. What is he thinking of us now? I've done something so bad that he has withdrawn from me. And now maybe he's come back. But she's thinking, you know, did he hear, hear my prayers all this time? Have they had any effect on him when I was praying and he he didn't seem to be answering me? I couldn't find him. Does he still think that I'm beautiful or is that all changed now? Is he looking for another wife maybe, thinking that there would be someone that would be more suited for him? Listen as I read this passage to you and then I'll expound it. I'll begin in Song of Solomon 6, 4. Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 4. And I'll read to verse 9. Here is the word of God, the holy word of God. Song of Solomon 6, 4. Oh, my love, this is him speaking. You are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins, and none is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. There are sixty queens and eighty concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. And there we end the reading of God's word. This is so helpful here. Okay? It's the picture. We resisted. He withdrew. Does that mean that my relationship with him has a blot on it that can't be healed? Does it mean that there's a blemish there, that my relationship with him is forever compromised because I was not willing to respond to him. Let's look at three things that he tells us in these verses about, our, about his attitude toward us in this situation. First, he tells us that though he withdrew, he cannot and could not resist our cries to him to return to, to us, for him to return to us. He can't resist that. When the Lord withdraws, we may think that he doesn't want to be with us. But verse 4 and 5 show that he actually finds it impossible to stay away from us when we come seeking him. He he can't do it for long. He can't hold out. Our prayers break him, as it were. He has a threefold description of how attractive we are to him in verse 4. And again, this is the time when there was a time when he had withdrawn. First, he says that we are as beautiful as Tirzah. Tirzah was a city in the promised land that belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. In the days of Solomon, when this song was written, all the tribes of Israel were united. You know, later the northern tribes were separated from the southern tribes and they had war with each other and things like that. But this was when they were still together. 
And Tirzah actually was the capital city when the kingdom was divided after Solomon in the northern kingdom. It was a you know, pretty well-known city, but they don't know where it is exactly now. It's not still an existing city today. But it was, uh, Tirzah means pleasant. That's what the very name means. It's pleasant. And it is thought to have been situated in a valley not far from Shechem. And being in a valley, it was very well watered. And therefore, it was bursting with fruitfulness. So this was sort of the pinnacle of the idea of the land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the land that God had given to his people. It was under Solomon's dominion as king. And this was the, the epitome of this is the, the beautiful land that God has given you. So the beloved compares his bride, the church, to Tirzah because it represents the best of the promised land. The land that itself represents the church. When he has withdrawn and we are seeking him, he is not staying away because we are unpleasant to him. No, he sees the fruit in us. He sees our deep affection for him. Remember the bride, was she was talking about how much she loved him and all the good attributes of him. Uh, so he sees our deep affection for him and our seeking after him, and he's very pleased with our fruitfulness. It is pleasant, like Tirzah. We are his bride, his workmanship through his saving power, and he wants us, even though he has deemed it best to stay apart for a little while, to teach us that our yearning for him might increase. He's staying, holding back for a little bit. Second, he says that we are lovely as Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, to use the word I used last week, the trysting place of the Old Testament church, the place where we meet with God. Here through rituals, the Lord had his people come before him to praise him and to bring their offerings and to show their love to him. And he, in turn, shows his love, showed his love and acceptance to them through the sacrifices of atonement and the things that he appointed to cleanse them and the feeding of them with the truth about who he is and about giving his promises to them and the promise of forgiveness and the cleansing, announced amount of cleansing and the blessing on them. In this city, Jerusalem, he showed them his love and acceptance of them and they showed their love toward him. How he delights in, as it were, making love to his people, to use the marriage analogy. That's what happens there. He shows them his love, and they show him their love. Now we have, of course, the church, which is, consists of many different assemblies all over the world, united together under the profession of Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior the profession of the gospel, professing to trust in Christ as the sacrifice of the new covenant that takes away our sins, Christ crucified and his blood shed for the remission of sins. God finds his bride communing with him in his own sacrifice now at Jerusalem, you see, where the sacrifices is, is uh, the ordinances are administered in the in the, in the assembly of God's people, he finds his bride as lovely as Jerusalem where these ordinances are kept. The Lord delights in the praises of his people. He inhabits the praise of his people just as he delights in their fruit. So he delights when he sees our affection expressed in our worship. 
So with Tirzah, to put these two together, there's kind of a parallel here. With Tirzah, you have the beauty of the bride's fruit described. And with her comparison to Jerusalem, you have the loveliness of her worship described, depicted. But the third comparison seems to be a little out of place here. What is the third thing he says that she's like here? He says that she is as awesome as an army with banners. Now, maybe looking at the original words a little bit will help us. Well, looking at the Hebrew word translated awesome, it actually makes it more difficult because the word used carries the idea of someone who is terrifying, like in an imposing way, someone that makes you, you know, oh no, what are they going to do? The suggestion is that the bride is a mighty force to be reckoned with, a power that cannot be resisted. When you, when you see, in those days, if you saw a bunch of, of banners, you know, people with flags, and things, that, was, that was an army out, outside. The, they came outside your city gates, and you look out, and the whole landscape is filled with all, you see all these banners with their little, little divisions and things, and like, oh no, like, what are they going to do? What, what, what are we going to do? What's going to happen to us? They're, they're going to, we can't effectively resist them. They're, they're going to be able to do something to us. Now, we might think of the way, we, we, we might think uh, of the way the church unsettles unbelievers by her unrelenting commitment to the Lord here. When we think of this army that, you know, she's like an army. You know, even though God often gives leave to our enemies to, he allows them to, to kill us or to imprison us, to persecute us. No matter what we do, no matter what they do, I should say, there's one thing that they can't do. They can't destroy our relationship with Christ, our love for Christ. And that's what unnerves them. They see that we have something that is, is potent that they cannot control. When believers suffer and die for him, then they're, the most, they, they, they're terrifying to their enemies because they just can't explain it. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to take your life. And you still are going to tell me that you love Jesus Christ and that you won't do whatever it is I'm asking you to do? She strikes terror. The church strikes terror in her adversaries because deep down they know that what she says is true. For many centuries, the world has tried to snuff out the church. But when she is weak, that's when she's stronger than ever. How many times are we told in Acts when there's just a small group and they were persecuted by the Jews, and they were poor, they hardly had enough food to eat. It wasn't anything imposing in the worldly terms, but it says that people feared them. It tells us that over and over, that they were terrified because of the church's power in the Lord. Their enemies were afraid, and they dared not join them. It says, it's true, Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. You can't stand up against this, this, this host, this church, it's like an army with banners. Now, indeed, we might think of the church in that way when we see this picture of the, the army. with. But our Lord seems to be describing what she is in his eyes. You see, she was as lovely as Jerusalem to me. She's as pleasant as Tirzah to me, he's saying. And she's an army with banners, he's saying, here to me. You hold on, you'll say, how could that be? He's the son of God. How could she be a force that he cannot resist. And, and it is 
that very fact that makes her, or, 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 that he, he's the son of God, how, how can that be possible? It's the very fact that he's the son of God that actually makes it so that she can resist him because of who he is. As the son of God, because he's the son of God, he has pledged his troth to her, his commitment to her. Therefore, when she comes asking him, he can't resist her. He can't say no to her. His love and commitment as God's son won't let him resist our prayers. Now, this is a, there is a dangerous heresy that teaches that we can claim whatever we want from God. In Jesus' name or by faith or whatever, that faith is some kind of impersonal force that we can tap into and we can make God do stuff if we have faith. We can make whatever happens happen that we want to happen. That is not at all what I'm talking about here. I am talking about the fact that he has promised to forgive us when we come to him confessing our sins and looking to him for salvation. He has told us That though he would chasten us, we break him down when we come to him looking in faith for his mercy and forgiveness and for restoration from him so that he must relent because his divine promise stands and he will not, he does not lie, he will not lie. And because his character is that of loving his people and his bride, he cannot resist this mighty army. Now, for proof of this, look at the next verse. In verse 5, our Lord pleads with his bride, turn your eyes away from me because they overcome him. You can see that, verse 5. Turn your eyes away from me for they have overcome me. Now, this is one of those times when you say, wait a minute, you know, this is an analogy here that you're drawing this from. You can't draw that much from an analogy. And I agree. This is one of those times when it would not be wise to draw a doctrine of our faith from allegorical poetry. We are to get our doctrines of faith, the things that we firmly believe and are foundational from books like Romans or or Deuteronomy. Or there are statements in the Psalms and things like that that are very doctrinal statements. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool, that sort of thing that are not poor, but we do not build our faith and our doctrines of faith from the Song of Solomon, a passage like this. What we get from the Song of Solomon, as I've told you before, is a beautiful, beautiful, enriching pictures and illustrations of the doctrine of our faith so that we see them in a poetic way that's very beautiful and enriching of those doctrines so that the doctrines aren't just like a list of doctrines on the wall but they become personal things that we engage with. So we dare not conclude that our longing eyes for our Lord are like a powerful army that overcomes him because he's God Almighty, unless we have that doctrine taught plainly in Scripture in clear places, other than in an allegory like this. And the fact is that we do have it taught elsewhere. He presents himself to us as one who is unable to refuse our prayers when we pray for the things that he has promised. The heretics who teach the prosperity gospel that I was talking about before, they take 
this doctrine and twist it to suit their own ends. But we must hold on to the, the true aspect of the doctrine without the twist. When Jesus teaches us in John 14, 13, that whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, he means it. It is a true statement that whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He means, for example, that a repentant sinner praying for forgiveness in his name according to his saving work in the gospel will be forgiven. Absolutely. He is not able, Christ is not able to resist such a prayer. He does not mean fill in the blank of whatever you want. It's whatever you ask in my name. So it has to be the things that he and his authority as Lord has promised and declared to us. We come to him in his name looking for those things by his work is how we receive it as he has taught us. So we come in his name and we receive it. Now we have this illustrated for us, this very thing that we're talking about in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but in the Old Testament with the entire church and how she got her name, how the church got her name, Israel. Do you remember how Israel got her name? It was when Jacob wrestled with the Lord and would not let him go. I will not let you go until you bless me, he said. Jacob had been trying to obtain God's blessing that was promised to him by his own clever tactics. And again and again, the Lord kept blessing him anyway. And, but he made it clear that it wasn't because of your tactics, like his tactics would all go wrong. And God would bless him anyway. And God said, look, I promise to bless you. I'm going to bless you, buddy. But you quit doing all these weird things to try to manipulate the blessing. You, it's, it's not working. Finally, Jacob had come to the place where he fully understood that the only way to find God's blessing was not through his clever tactics, but through faith in the Lord and his promises. So it was that at, Pen at Peniel, when he was threatened with extinction because of the wrath of his brother Esau, or what he perceived to be the wrath of his brother Esau, this would be the extinction, you see, of the bride of Christ. It was that time he cried out to the Lord and would not stop crying out to him. Okay, we read this in Genesis 32, 32, 6. Okay, this is how it goes. Genesis, Genesis 32, 6. Jacob hears that his brother Esau is coming to him with 400 men. And we're told that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. I'm going, to, I'm going to be wiped out here. You know, I'm going to be destroyed. So in verse, verses 9 through 11, he cries out in desperation to God, confessing that he is not worthy of even the least of the mercies that he's received from God and claiming God's promise. Here are his words from verse 9, Genesis 32, 9. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, returned to your country and to your family, which is what he was doing now. God told him to do this, and I will deal well with you. That's the promise. He says, I'm not worthy. This is the next verse, verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all of the, the mercies and of the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff. That's, he went across just with his staff. He came back now with two companies, with all these wives and children and things that he had. He says, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. 
Now think about what was at stake here. Where were all the promises of the salvation of the world contained? In the promised seed to Jacob that was to come. Here was the church. Here was the bride. It was Jacob and those descendants that were to come from him. This was the bride of Christ that was to bring forth the Savior of the world. And if he was wiped out, then all was lost. It was all done. No salvation. It's gone. In verse 24, we're told that the Lord comes and that Jacob wrestles with him all through the night so that the Lord says, let me go for the day breaks. Now, have you heard this before? Let me go. What do we see in the Song of Solomon in our reading? He says, turn your eyes away from me. Like, stop it. (laughs) Turn away. You're, you're, You're overcoming me. He says, let me go for the day breaks. The the Lord wanted to be released. But Jacob replies, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Think of it. He had a hold of the Lord because of the promise. And in verse 27, the Lord changes Jacob's name. And he admits, the Lord declares, he changes his name because Jacob prevailed. He prevailed. He says, verse 27, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. That's how he got the name Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel because he prevailed with God. Now, did the Lord not do the same thing with Moses some years later? God had promised to the 12 tribes that they would be his people and that they would bring forth the the promised Messiah. And so Moses prayed when Israel had worshipped the golden calf. And God said, I'm going to destroy these people. Listen to the language again. Exodus 32.10. Now, therefore, this is God speaking. Now, therefore, let me alone. Same thing, right? Let me go, he said before. Turn your eyes away from me. It's the same thing. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make you a great nation. I'll, I'll raise up another nation for you, Moses. Like, I'm done with these people. I've, I've dealt with them. I've, now they're worshiping a golden calf. Like, let's, let's get another one. Moses had a power over him by his prayers. It was a power rooted in the Lord's promise to bless his people through the coming gospel. And of course, the Lord loved it, really, when Moses prayed this way. This is what the Lord wanted him to do. This is what the Lord wanted Jacob to do. This is what he knew he would do, what he knew Moses would do. It was all part of his purpose. He wanted to forgive them all along, of course. He wanted to deliver them all along, of course. But he wanted Moses and all of his people, he wants all of you to know that forgiveness comes only by intercession in the name of Jesus Christ. It comes by the cross. So here in the Song of Solomon, Jesus is expressing the power that his bride had over him during the whole time that he was withdrawn and she was seeking him. Though he appeared absent, he was there all along. Her, her eyes, he saw her eyes, her yearning eyes upon him the entire time. And he was, felt himself being overcome by those eyes, prevailed 
upon, prevailed against, they prevailed against him. Isn't that a huge encouragement? Even when the Lord seems far away, even when he does not seem to hear our prayers, even when the reason he's not hearing our prayers we know is because he's chastening us, we are in fact a mighty army with banners coming to him, an army that he cannot resist. He hears those cries. Such is his love, such is his faithfulness to his promise. Now let's look at the second thing we learn about Jesus' attitude toward us when he's withdrawn. Okay? Second, he tells us that though he withdrew, he still finds us as beautiful as ever. That's the teaching of verses 5 through 7, starting in the middle of verse 5. He says, Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins, and none is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. Does that sound familiar? We, we ran into this description back at the beginning of chapter 4. The, these, all these elements were included in it. It was a fuller description than that, but it included all of these elements. And the fact that we've seen it before is a very instructive thing to us right here. Why is that significant? Well, after her cold treatment of him that she was ashamed of that caused him to withdraw, she may well have thought that she would never be as lovely to him as she was before she did that. How could he, she ever make, there was, there was a blot on her, as I, as I mentioned before. Surely she would always be less in his eyes now after what she had done. How could she ever recover from that? We can feel that way sometimes when we have sinned. Well, I've done this great sin. It's a blot on my life. It's, there's, there's no way that I can erase this. It's, it's going to affect my, my relationship with God, my communion with God for the rest of my life. But by, repent, by repeating the description of his revering of her, her his delight in her, he, the, the description that he used with her before she resisted him, by repeating that now, after she had resisted him, now that they're together again, shows us that he thinks she is just as lovely as she was before. That's the beautiful thing. His forgiveness is so thorough that it removes every spot and every blemish. Yes, dear brother. Yes, dear sister. Before the Lord, it doesn't matter what you may have done in the past. Whatever may be on your record, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, gives you a new record when you come to him. And there is nothing on that record against you. Though your sins are as scarlet, they are as white as snow. When Jesus washes you, the record is clear so that your old sins do not stand as a blot against you. There may be consequences of those sins. Broken relationships that will never be mended and losses that will never be recovered. But as a person, You are as clean and as beautiful before him as if you had never committed those sins. His salvation is that pure and that complete and that effective. That is so important. Now let's look at the particulars that are mentioned here. First, 
there is mention of the bride's hair. Now, these, these are a little bit, I told you this when we looked at them back in chapter 4. You know, interpreting these exactly, we're just getting general impressions of what, they, what they're showing. They're showing that, that she's attractive to him, okay? So, so when we think about the hair, what, what, is the, what is the hair of the bride? Well, well, the hair of a woman is given to her for her adorning. It's one of the things that stands out about her. It's her glory. And he describes her hair as still like that beautiful image he had used before of the goats on the side of the, you know, look across the verdant valley and the beautiful valley and the goats, they're, they're going down the side of the hill. Like her hair there is, 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 is beautiful, it's lovely. He's saying, you're as lovely now as you were before you resisted me. Second, there is mention of her teeth. When you sin, you feel dirty and defiled. But he says that your teeth are like a flock of sheep that have just come up from the washing. Who is the dentist? Who is the hygienist? Jesus Christ washes away our sin. You are not all dirty anymore when you return to him, confessing your sin. Again, though your sin be as scarlet, it's white as snow. And when you sin, you may feel that you're terribly disordered in his his eyes. You know, my life is is a wreck. It's a mess. But no, he says, your teeth are like a flock of sheep in which each is in its place and where each has a twin. When you come back to him, he puts everything in order. Nothing is missing. Everything is put in place again so that everything finds its proper place. Third, there is a description of her temple, her cheek and the side of her face. One of the beautiful things about a woman that that would be noticeable is, the, is her, her, her face. And he says it's like a piece of pomegranate with the color and the richness. This is a description of the radiance of, of the bride in Christ's eyes. When Christ is withdrawn, you may feel that I'm dull and I'm, dis, I'm uninteresting to him. I'm worse than that. I'm repulsive to him. But he says, no. No, you're, you're, you're radiant to me. You're, you're something attractive to me. Such a confer- comforting truth to us. He still finds us as lovely as he did before we resisted him. Now let's turn to the third thing that Jesus tells us about his attitude toward us when our sin has caused him to withdraw from us for a time. Third, he tells us that though he withdrew, He still has eyes only for us. He points to all the the rivals, all the potential rivals from every status of bride that he might look, someone that he might look at as a potential bride, so to speak. They're the queens, the ones of the highest rank. They are the full wives who bring forth heirs to the throne. There are 60 of these, he says, not meant to be a definite number, but in poetry representing all of them that might seem there's 60 beautiful queens out there that, that might make a better wife for you than I would the bride six to herself. He says, okay, there's 60 of them out there. And, you know, I'm cold toward him. And here are these others. Maybe he would want, God says, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest or because you were the best or the most righteous or anything. He chose just freely. So, so they're beautiful and noble and majestic. Did the devil not show Jesus the glory of all the kingdoms and say, you can have these if you'll worship me? Did he not entice him? What do you want with that old bride of yours? Look at her. Here, 
you can have all of these kingdoms if you'll come to me. Then there are said to be the 80 concubines here. These are indeed wives, but servant wives, not queens who bring forth heirs to the throne, but women who bring forth children, descendants to the king in that way. And there are more of them, 80, because they are of less rank than queens. The queens are the highest rank, more rare, not as many of them. Again, symbolic numbers here. Surely the bride thinks there must be some of these, these these concubines that Christ would prefer to me, the one who would not even get up and let him in when he was out in the, outside in the night with the dew on him. There must be some of them that would be much more willing to, to do such things. And finally, there are all the virgins that he mentions. They're said to be here without number. The bride thinks, surely there are many among them that would be more attractive to the Lord than I am. There are, they are fresh and, and young and, and teachable, these, these maidens, these virgins that have not known a man. Surely they are more to be desired than Christ's bride from whom he had to withdraw. You know, we remember uh, King Ahasuerus when he, he called for the virgins. He said, I'm done with Vashti. Bring all the beautiful virgins of the land and let me pick one. And he you know, chose Esther out of all the ones that were, were around. Uh, maybe Christ is going to be like, he's got all these ones to choose from. And I've wrecked everything. So is he, is he going to be drawn to some of these? No, Jesus tells us not, not so. Look, look he says, you're still, after what you did, you're still the only one. At the first of verse nine, he says, my dove, we've seen that before, the one that has eyes for him, my perfect one, She's been washed, cleansed, no blemish, is the only one. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. He has eyes for no other. Let the devil show him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. But what does he want? He wants his bride, those that the Father has given him, to be redeemed, make up his bride. I've told you many times the bride is one bride, but she has many members. And that one bride, it made it, all the members are those who are redeemed and no one else. He does not want the glorious brides of this world. He wants those who are redeemed by his blood and who are filled by his Holy Spirit. He does not want those who do not love his Father. Why would he want them? Or those who have not been cleansed and made new creations by his saving power and grace. These, have, these ones of the world have nothing to make them the object of his desire. He wants the ones that have been set apart to God. He goes on to describe us as those who have been brought forth by our mother who, and that we're also her favorite. Now, what's that talking about? Well, he, he says that his bride is the only one of her mother as well the favorite of the one who bore her. Understand what this means. The mother is the church who by Christ brings forth many sons and daughters who themselves become part of the church. We sang that in Psalm 45 already, didn't we? That the children that are born and then they become princes. They become part of the, of the kingdom of Christ. 
So they're brought forth. As we do evangelism, the church goes out with evangelism. What is she to do? Make disciples, gather in all of Christ's people to Him, to His elect, to, that they come baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And then we have our own children, the, the, the children we have naturally that, that are brought forth in the church and that we bring up in the nurture and fear of the Lord. Isaiah 54 describes this. It says to her, okay, here she is, you know, she's struggling. I, I've failed. I've, I've not been fruitful. I've been unclean. He's, he's displeased with me. Well, he was displeased when she resisted him. But we've seen, he, she's still his only one. He says, sing, this is Isaiah 54, sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes. He says, you need to expand the house, your tent that you live in, because you're going to have a whole bunch of children and you've got to have room for them. So stretch out the walls, make it bigger. Because, see, they were in exile, right? They were, they, were the one, they were in chastisement. They were rejected in that sense. He's saying, no, I still love you and you're going to be brought back and you're going to multiply. You're going to spread to the nations. That's what happened now. Here we are on the other side of the world, rejoicing and serving this same Lord, part of that bride. Verse 3, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. Now listen to this. Why is she so fruitful? For your husband is your maker. The Lord of hosts is his name and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you are refused, says your God. For, listen to this now, for a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face, he did, he turned away from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The church then brings forth children by Christ, by the gospel, by bringing the gospel, baptizing, doing all the things he says to do, and she, and she is delighted with her children. The church is delighted with her children. She has no interest in the glamour of the world and all the things out there. The true church says, I want those who serve Jesus Christ. I want those who love him. I want those who are found in him. She wants those that are brought forth, you see, by her, by the ordinances of the gospel, not the ordinances of the world, the ordinances of the church, whether they be noble queens, concubines, or virgins. It's fine if they're queens and concubines and virgins, doesn't, that, but the thing that matters is that they're brought forth, that they're born again by the grace of God and that they have the forgiveness of Christ. Unless they were brought forth by the gospel, they're of no account in her eyes. Jesus, the bridegroom, goes on to say that the daughters who are brought forth look at the church who brought them forth 
and praise her. So there's a two-way praise going on, right? The mother delighting in her children that were born through her ordinances and because of her union with Christ. And then the children look at the mother and say, this is our mother. We don't want to be the children of the world out there. We're delighted with the church. We're delighted with our mother and, our, and, and with Jesus Christ. They have, though the mothers that they see out in the world might have greater glory in the world, they might have greater riches, they might have greater honor, they might have beautiful things, talents, they might be more attractive in various ways, but Mother Church is the one that the daughters praise. They want to be with her in the wilderness rather than, like with Moses in the wilderness, rather than in the palace of Pharaoh in Egypt with all of the riches and pleasures of the world, they find pleasure in those who are holy and who love God and are reconciled to God. The difference in Christ's bride should be evident to all. The difference is that she is the only one who has been reconciled to God. All others at the core hate God, else they would come and serve God and be redeemed by Christ. He is God and you cannot love if You cannot love him if you do not have him to rule over you as your God. You don't love God if if you're in a rebellion against him. You're denying all that he is. He's the one who is over all. Jesus has no use for those who are enemies of his father. Why would he? They're they're as reprehensible as reprehensible can be. He delights in his dove, his perfect one. She is the only one because she has been reconciled to God forever. Her glory will be revealed at the last day, and all the queens and the concubines and the virgins of this world, would, however great and noble and lovely they may have seen in the world, will be shown to have gotten everything wrong. Everything wrong. Everything wrong. Everything wrong because they did not bow to God Almighty. That's the most basic thing of being a human being. Everything wrong because they refused to come to Jesus when they were lost, that they might be saved, that they might be cleansed and reconciled to God. That is the thing that is most needful. They will have, what they will have will be shown to be vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the Lord. It will be like a vapor that is gone. All the glory that they had, all the riches, all the honor, if they were not reconciled to God. So you see that in his withdrawal from us, it is not that Christ was, while he had withdrawn from us, saying, I think I'd be interested in another bride. No, no. He wants the one that has been reconciled to God by, by his own blood and that has received life from his spirit. There is no one that compares to her. He's got no interest anywhere else. What an encouragement there is to us in this whole text, both for those who are currently deprived of his kisses, as it were, and yearning for them. Maybe you're in that situation, you're trying to, you're crying out to God and you feel far away from him and you don't sense, there's not the manifestation of his love, his word not speaking to you and you're struggling with that. This for you, as well as for those who maybe have recently been restored. You've come back to him, you're enjoying the hearing his voice as you read his word and you, you're, you're learning of him, will look at this text and know that your prayers for restoration are not unnoticed. 
There having an irresistible draw on him like an army with banners. He finds you as irresistible and as attractive as ever. Tirzah and Jerusalem and an army with banners. There is no one that he desires but you, dear bride of Christ. This is not, but this is nothing to be proud about though, is it? It's just the opposite. There is nothing good in any of us until Christ has saved us. Those who have been saved by him know that. There is no place for pride when you realize that there is nothing good in you, nothing in you that is acceptable to God apart from until Christ does his redeeming work. That's why we do not glory in the flesh. What is the flesh? That's what we can do without God. The flesh is what you do without God. But in the cross of Jesus Christ, we glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. His work in us, in us, upon us, that saves us and really does change us. And it really does make us people who have fruit, that we love God. We actually do begin to have love for God. We actually begin to serve him and to do his will. Take that away, though. Take his saving work away, and there's nothing there. There's nothing good that is in you. But keep the cross and the saving work of Jesus and you have a beautiful bride who has been transformed by him. You have someone who by his saving work loves him. You have someone whose fruit will grow up to perfection. He knows what he's going to do. He knows the plans that he has for you. This is the bride that Jesus will always love and there will never be another for him. You are the bride if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. Please stand and let's pray and give thanks to him. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you and praise you for what we have seen about our Lord Jesus Christ and about the times when he may, for reasons, withdraw from us. We know, Lord, that when we have sinned against him, that there are times when, when he does that, when he, 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 he withdraws in order to chasten us. But we thank you, Lord, that, that when, uh, when that happens, that we're, we're shown in this passage that he still very much loves us, that he still is attracted to us, that even though it may seem like he's not hearing our prayers, that in fact he is. In fact, that our prayers are having a, a, a potency, a power that he cannot resist, like an army with banners. We praise you, O Lord, for the, for the encouragement that that gives us to keep on praying, to keep on asking you, Lord. Like we saw back when we had that this sermon in the middle of the, the uh, lockdown back of, uh, in, a while ago, that looking at all of Isaiah and seeing how that it is for us to cry out to you that you would make Jerusalem a praise in the earth, that you would make your church to be a praise in the earth. It's not, Lord. And we want to see that. You've promised to do that. And you will do that. And I pray, Lord, that we would cry out to you with that confidence, knowing that you will not be able to resist your people's prayers. Because you have promised this. You've told us that you will do this. Lord, make your church glorious. Make her a praise in the earth. Work in her. Lord, even though you bear long and we have to wait long, we pray that we would continue our prayers like the widow did. And that you would indeed, Lord, bring about the glorious answer to those prayers. And help us to know, Lord, that even when we have sinned, that we're as beautiful to you as we were before we sinned. That when we have to be chastened, that 
once we have come to you and we've received your forgiveness and mercy, that we're as lovely to you as we ever were, that there is no spot or blemish upon us. We thank you so much for that, Lord. And we pray that we would have great gladness in the free and full forgiveness of sins. And may we also know that you are not going after another bride, that though we are sometimes the least among the, all the kingdoms of the world and as your people, that, Lord, you are still, we are yours, and there's no one else in your eyes. And we praise you for that, Lord, and we pray that we would, we would delight in our mother and that we would delight in our daughters. And, Father, that we would go forth calling on your name and serving you. We thank you so much, Lord, for all that you have done for us. Bless us now as we prepare to come to the table, and we want, we want to think on what Christ has done for us in order that that we might belong to you and that we might be your bride. What he has done for the bride that makes her different from everybody else in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just receive now the blessing of the Lord our God. He delights to put his name upon you, to identify you with him and his blessing because you are his dear bride. So receive now his blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.